Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. Federal Reserve raises interest rates by a quarter percentage point, a smaller increase than previous rate hikes, but they also say the fight against high inflation is not over and there are more rate hikes to come. Fed Chair Jerome Powell also warning that Congress and the president must raise the nation's debt ceiling to avoid a default, saying no one should assume the Fed can protect the economy from the consequences of failing to act in a timely manner. President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy meeting at the White House to talk about raising the debt ceiling and the Republican demands of putting spending cuts on such a bill. We'll talk about all that with a CQ Roll Call budget reporter. House passing a bill to limit federal employee teleworking options that were put in place during the COVID-19 pandemic. President Biden's personal attorney says the FBI searched the president's vacation home in Rehoboth, Delaware, for any documents marked classified and found none. And the search was planned and with the president's full cooperation. And Vice President Kamala Harris speaking at the funeral service for Tyree Nichols in Memphis, Tennessee, calling on Congress to pass the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, a bill that the Senate blocked in the last Congress, specifically Senate Republicans. Now to the economy. This from the Associated Press. The Federal Reserve extended its fight against high inflation Wednesday by raising its key interest rate by a quarter point, its eighth hike since March. And the Fed signaled that even though inflation is easing, it remains high enough to require further rate hikes. The central bank's latest move put its benchmark short-term rate in a range of four and a half to four and three quarters percent, its highest level in 15 years. Though smaller than its previous hike and even an even larger increase as before that, the latest move will likely further raise the cost of, of many consumer and business loans and the risk of a recession. That from Associated Press. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell explaining the rate hike at a news conference. At today's meeting, the committee raised the target range for the federal funds rate by 25 basis points, bringing the target range to four and a half to four and three quarters percent. And we are continuing the process of significantly reducing the size of our balance sheet. With today's action, we have raised interest rates by four and a half percentage points over the past year. We continue to anticipate that ongoing increases in the target range for the federal funds rate will be appropriate in order to attain a stance of monetary policy that is sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2% over time. We are seeing the effects of our policy actions on demand in the most interest-sensitive sectors of the economy, particularly housing. 
It will take time, however, for the full effects of monetary restraint to be realized, especially on inflation. In light of the cumulative tightening of monetary policy and the lags with which monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation, the committee decided to raise interest rates by 25 basis points today, continuing the step down from last year's rapid pace of increases. Shifting to a slower pace will better allow the committee to assess the economy's progress toward our goals as we determine the extent of future increases that will be required to attain a sufficiently restrictive stance. We will continue to make our decisions meeting by meeting, take into a, taking into account the totality of incoming data and their implications for the outlook for economic activity and inflation. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell at a news conference today at Fed headquarters in Washington, D.C. He was also asked during the news conference about raising the nation's debt ceiling. This is President Joe Biden is meeting today with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy at the White House on that topic. New York Times writing Republicans have refused to raise the statutory debt limit unless Mr. Biden accepts deep cuts in federal spending. The president has said repeatedly that he expects Congress to raise the borrowing cap with no strings attached and that he will not negotiate on conditions for an increase. Here's the question to the Fed chair. Um, hi, Chair Powell. I wanted to ask about um, the debt ceiling. Um, given that we've now hit up against it, um, I was wondering if the U.S. goes past the X date, will the Fed do whatever the Treasury directs as it relates to making payments as the fiscal agent, or will it do its, do its own analysis of any legal constraints? So your question is, would we say your question again? Will the Fed do what Treasury directs as it relates to making payments, or will it do its own analysis of any legal constraints? So you're really asking about... But I, I, you're asking about prioritization, in effect, is what yes, you're... Okay. Yes, So I, I, I feel like I have to say this. There's only one way forward here, and that is for Congress to raise the debt ceiling so that the United States government can pay all of its obligations when due. And any deviations from that path would be highly risky, and that no one should assume that the Fed can protect the economy from the consequences of failing to act in a timely manner. In terms of our relationship with the Treasury, we are their fiscal agent, and I'm just going to leave it at that. Are, are you actively doing any planning of, of what might happen in the event that that would happen? I'm, I'm just going to leave it at that. This is a matter that's to be resolved between, really, it's really Congress's job to raise the debt ceiling, and uh, I gather there are discussions happening, but they don't involve us. We're, we're, not, uh, we're not involved in those discussions, so we're the fiscal agent. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell at his news conference today. And those discussions were going on. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, meeting with President Joe Biden at the White House for a few hours. After that, the Speaker came out to the White House driveway and spoke with reporters. You know, the President, I had a, a good first meeting. Um, I shared my perspective with him. He shared his. And we can we agreed to continue the conversation. Um, we want to make sure we do this in a responsible, reasonable way, and uh, we'll be talking again. Do you think that the odds of the default are growing, shrinking? Where would you place the break? Look, I, I think our first meeting was a good meeting. I don't, I don't want to put it in any false perspectives. We, we both have different perspectives on this, but uh, I thought this was a good meeting. We promised we would continue the conversation. We'll see if we can get there. I think at the end of the day, we can find common ground. I really do. You said you have a big plan. When you share that plan. He is not going to negotiate a deal. Is that the message that he expressed to you today, or do you think that he will? 
Look, I don't want to put any words in his mouth. We had an hour conversation about this that I thought was a very good discussion, and we, we walked out saying we would continue the discussion. And I think there is an opportunity here to come to an agreement on both sides. And I think that's the best for the, I think that's what the American people want. Look, they want us to be responsible and sensible about this. And that's exactly the way we're handling it. I told the president I would like to see if we can come to an agreement long before the deadline and we can start working on other things. Mr. Speaker, where should those, where should those budget cuts come from right now? Medicare and Social Security, the White House insists Republicans want to cut. What cuts do you want? Well, let me be clear about that. And I've been clear many times. No, we're not talking about that. And to really be able to do this right, I'm not going to negotiate this in the press, right? I respect the conversation we had together, and we will continue that. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, you said today that you have a big plan. When are you going to share that big plan? Look, I, I think the President and I have talked about a lot of different ideas, and we'll work to see if we can come to an agreement. Look, I know you. I know you all have a job to do. But I don't think we'll come to an agreement if I negotiate with you. I think the respectful way to do it is to talk to the president, as we did right now, for more than an hour. We both walked away. We have different perspectives. But we both laid out some of our vision of where we'd want to get to. And I believe, after laying both of out, I can see where we can find common ground. I think the American public would appreciate that. And we, look, I've been very, I've been very clear. The current path we're on, we cannot sustain. We've got to change the directory to put ourselves on a path to balance. How we get there will be our discussions. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, with reporters in the White House driveway. With more on the debt ceiling negotiations, we're joined on the phone by Paul Krawczak, CQ Roll Call Senior Budget Reporter. Thank you so much for being with us. You wrote an article this morning before the meeting with President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy at RollCall.com comparing this debt ceiling standoff to the one in 2011. How do they compare? Well, 2011 was the last time that there were really significant conditions attached to a debt ceiling increase, and that was the Budget Control Act, which... Uh, established spending caps for 10 years and and also resulted in a sequestration of automatic cuts in mandatory spending, which are still continuing um, to this day. Um, So, you know, where we are today is similar and different from from then. Um, I mean, a major similarity is that Republicans, again, are insisting on a negotiation over, you know, spending cuts in return for raising the debt limit later this year. Um, one of the major differences is that um, back in 2011, it was President Obama and it was a Democratic-controlled Senate and Republican-controlled House. They did not really start negotiating until the spring or around April or so. Um, so they did not have, you know, as much time as they have this year. So this year, the, ne- the negotiation, if there is a negotiation, Republicans want a negotiation. Um, it's starting um, now, uh, today, you know, perhaps even, you know, during the meeting with uh, Speaker McCarthy and President Biden, although President Biden so far has said that he will not negotiate over the debt limit. Back then as well, 
there was talk about linking spending cuts with some tax increases. So it wasn't cutting spending only. It was deficit reduction, correct? That's correct. Um, the It started out as spending cuts only. Uh, Speaker John Boehner at that time was insisting on uh, spending cuts only. Um, but later in the year, uh, Boehner and Obama met secretly, um, and they discussed a deficit reduction plan that would also include tax increases through a tax overhaul and possibly even some changes to the major entitlement programs. Um, ultimately, that did not that did not work out. President Obama, they had agreed on a, a tax revenue number. President Obama later asked for more. Uh, Boehner pulled out of that negotiation. So um, the, the final deal that they uh, passed in August uh, did not include uh, tax increases. We're talking with Paul Krawczak from CQ Roll Call. If there is no final deal worked out by the the deadline when they the Treasury Department says that the debt ceiling must be raised, that would be June, perhaps early July. What are some other options being discussed? We've heard something about a discharge petition, also perhaps some short-term extensions. Can you explain more about those? Right. So uh, one option that Republicans are discussing would be one or more short-term increases in the debt limit. Um, so in other words, they could approach June and, and Republicans could propose uh, suspending the debt limit uh, for a number of months, uh, maybe until the end of the fiscal year, the end of September, maybe a shorter period. Um, and this, this would provide more room for more time for negotiations. Um, so that's one option. Um, the, another option is a discharge petition, uh, which would be initiated in the House. Uh, um, and it's actually, it's very challenging to actually successfully uh, use a discharge petition to pass a bill. But, but this, this would be something which would discharge a debt limit increase from committee, um, and the House would vote on it and send it to the Senate. So that, that's a possibility, but not a very strong possibility. Um, so those are, I mean, those are two possibilities. And then there's, there's a third option here, and that is that ultimately you could have the Senate come up with a deal that would be brokered by the Senate Majority Leader Schumer and Senate Minority Leader McConnell um, if, if this House Republican effort to you know, get spending cuts uh, does not succeed. There's always the fallback of the Senate putting something together and passing it and then sending it to the House. And final question, you mentioned that the negotiations seem to be starting a little bit earlier than they have in the past. What does that mean for the next couple of months as this plays out? Well, first of all, uh, the reason it's starting earlier is because back in 2011, uh, the Congress had not um, passed uh, all of their 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 uh, sp- appropriation spending bills for the year. So, the first part of the year, all the way up until April, um, they were they were arguing over 
appropriations spending, and, and they finally passed the final appropriations bill in April. So then they turned to the to the debt limit. Um, this year, the uh, the omnibus appropriations bill for this current fiscal year has been passed, so they're all done with that. So they can start early. But what it does mean is that we are going to see a lot of a lot of proposals from Democrats and Republicans related to the debt limit and related to cutting spending and related to other kinds of, you know, uh, budget processes. Um, And we're going to see certainly some level of negotiation. Um, President Biden may very well maintain his stance that he's not going to negotiate over the debt limit, but it's likely that there will nevertheless be talks between Republicans and Democrats in the White House over over budget uh, spending and policies that could end up attached to the debt limit. Paul Krawczak is a senior budget reporter with CQ Roll Call. His stories at rollcall.com and on Twitter at Paul Krawczak. Thank you very much. And thank you. On Wall Street today, the Dow up six, Nasdaq up 231, S&P up 42. President Biden talking today about an effort to limit credit card fees and also what he calls excessive junk fees. The extra charges add to things like tickets, airline tickets and, and other tickets and hotel charges. President speaking at the White House at a meeting of his competition council. Today, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is proposing a new rule to lower credit card late fees. Right now, credit card companies charge an average of $31 whenever you can't pay your bill on time. That's on top of the interest that you're already paying. Now, nobody's saying that you should pay, you shouldn't pay your fees on time, and no one says the bank should lend you money for free. But that's what banks are charged interest for. But in the Obama-Biden administration, Congress passed a bipartisan law that said banks cannot charge late fees that are significantly more than the late payments cost them in the first place. And so, well, it doesn't cost 31 bucks for a bank to process a late fee, but that's how much they're charging you now. And folks, uh, that's a junk fee, if uh, there ever was one. And it can drain hundreds of dollars a year from the pockets of hardworking American families, especially, especially folks who are already struggling to make ends meet, but not anymore after today. Today's rule proposes to cut those fees from $31 on average to $8, to $8. That change is expected to save tens of millions of dollars for Americans, roughly $9 billion a year in total savings. And over the next few weeks, my team is going to meet with state and local officials across the country to identify things they can do to crack down on junk fees in their own jurisdictions. And today, I'm also calling on Congress to pass the Junk Free Protection Act, a ban to ban four of the most frustrating charges Americans face. The first one of those is some airlines charge extra to pick your seat, including for uh, parents who just want to sit next to their child on the plane. They charge extra. You don't know that going in, though. And it's wrong. Secondly, the, uh, the uh, when you book a hotel, 
You should see the full cost right then and there instead of getting hit with what's called a resort fee, which can be over $50 a night and uh, when you check out. And third, you should be able to switch your internet, cable, or cell phone plan without the $200 early <coughs> termination penalty some of these companies charge. And fourth, you should lower the huge service fees that companies like Ticketmaster slap onto tickets for concerts or sporting events that can easily add hundreds of bucks to a family's night out. Congress should pass the Junk Free Protection Act so we can crack down on these fees and give hardworking Americans just a little bit more breathing room. President Joe Biden today at the White House during the meeting of his competition council, which he created by executive order in 2021. This is Washington Today. The president's personal attorney, Bob Bauer, saying today that the Justice Department it was searching the president's vacation home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, as part of its ongoing investigation into the handling of classified documents. Bob Bauer putting out the statement saying the DOG's planned search of the president's Rehoboth residences conducted in coordination and cooperation with the president's attorneys has concluded the search was con- from 8.30 a.m. to noon. No documents with classified markings were found consistent with the process in Wilmington and DOJ. The DOJ took for further review some materials and handwritten notes that appear to relate to his time as vice president. Ian Sams is a spokesperson for the White House Counsel's Office, speaking later with reporters in the White House driveway. Has the FBI conducted any searches of any other locations associated with the president that you or the White House is aware of? Uh, Look, I think we're providing information as this goes on and answering questions about the the search activities as they've been happening. I don't want to speak too much to the DOJ's practices in an ongoing investigation. I can say, you know, that that we have cooperated fully. The president's personal attorneys have provided information to DOJ. We've addressed openly and directly the uh, searches that were conducted Uh, first at the president's Wilmington residence and then today uh, at the Rehoboth residence. You saw in the statement that was released by the president's personal attorney, for example, that no documents with classified markings were found in Rehoboth today. And so, you know, we're going to continue to try to provide information as this investigation goes on and ensure that you guys have the ability to share with the American people sort of the information uh, that 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 is important for them to see as as the president's cooperating with this investigation. So, just, and so I don't. So I want to be very careful to respect the integrity of that investigation, not speak too much to the Justice Department's decision making and and their activities. But as it's appropriate, like we did today, if we have information to share about activities that have been conducted, we will do that. But just to be very clear about this, it's not. It's Go ahead. Let me let me follow up just okay. to, if I can very quickly. I'll, I'll ask a separate question. They can follow up on that. Did anyone at the White House at any point? tell the National Archives in any form that they could not release a press release about the discovery of classified documents. Uh, what are you, what's that in reference to? There's reporting that came from the House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer who says that in his conversations with the National Archives, they communicated that they were told, the Archives was told it could not release a press release at whatever point it was about the discovery of classified documents. Did anyone at the White House tell them not to do that? Yeah, I don't know anything about that. If that's actually what he said, it's probably better to ask the archives if that's actually what was said and and try to understand a little bit more what he meant. Josh, in my first question, you didn't say, though, you couldn't say yes or no whether that You just can't, can you, because it was yes or no. I I gave an answer to that question. Josh? Can you say confidently whether you believe there are any more classified documents? There were none found today, do you think this closed the door on classified documents? Well, look, 
look, the Justice Department is engaged in an ongoing investigation, an ongoing investigation, I should add, that the president has been fully cooperative in, offering unprecedented access to his home in Wilmington, to his home, every single room of his home in Rehoboth, as well as the one in Wilmington, uh, and, and giving them access to the information they need. He's moving quickly to get them the information that they need. I'm going to be really careful not to characterize what the Justice Department is doing in their investigation, probably more appropriate for a question like that to be asked of the Justice Department, so I would point you to them. Ian Sams, a spokesperson for the White House Counsel's Office with reporters today in the White House driveway. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed two separate special counsels to review classified documents already found in President Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware, and a Washington, D.C. office he once used, and also found in former President Donald Trump's home in Florida. And former Vice President Mike Pence has said some classified documents were found in his home in Indiana and were turned over to the National Archives. On President Biden, Washington Post reporting the only other known location where President Biden's papers may be stored is at his alma mater, the University of Delaware. In 2012, the president donated an extensive collection of papers from his 36 years in the Senate. The collection filled 1,875 boxes and included 415 gigabytes of electronic records, including committee reports, drafts of legislation, and correspondence. And the Washington Post article goes on. A university spokesman told the Post on January 11th after news broke about the first batch of classified documents being found at the Penn-Biden Center. The university had not been asked to do any searches of its collection. In Memphis, Tennessee today, choir performing at the funeral for Tyree Nichols at the Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church. Tyree Nichols was a 29-year-old black man who died after being beaten by police officers following a traffic stop three and a half weeks ago. Five officers have been fired and are charged with second-degree murder. Several others in the police and fire departments in Memphis have lost their jobs and may also be charged. Tyree Nichols' death has led to protests across the country calling for racial justice and police reform. Vice President Kamala Harris among the speakers at today's funeral. Mothers around the world, when their babies are born, pray to God when they hold that child that that body and that life will be safe for the rest of his life. Yet we have a mother and a father who mourn the life of a young man who should be here today. They have a grandson who now does not have a father. His brothers and sister will lose the love of growing old with their baby brother. And when we look at this situation, this is a family that lost their son and their brother through an act of violence at the hands and the feet of people who had been charged with keeping them safe. And when I think about the courage and the strength of this family, I think it demands that we speak truth. And with this, I will say, this violent act was not in pursuit of public safety. 
It was not in the interest of keeping the public safe because one must ask, was not it in the interest of keeping the public safe that Tyree Nichols would be with us here today? Was he not also entitled to the right to be safe? So when we talk about public safety, let us understand what it means in its truest form. Tyree Nichols should have been safe. So I'll just close by saying this. I was, as a senator, as a United States senator, a co-author of the original... George Floyd, Justice and Policing Act. And as Vice President of the United States, we demand that Congress pass the George Floyd, Justice and Policing Act. Joe Biden will sign it. And we should not delay and we will not be denied. It is non-negotiable. And with that, I'll just, Pastor, if you don't mind, I, it, one of my favorite verses in Scripture is Luke chapter 1, verse 79, which tells us God will help us to shine a light upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Let our memory of Tyree shine a light on the path toward peace and justice. Thank you. Vice President Kamala Harris at the funeral service for Tyree Nichols today in Memphis, Tennessee. Others in attendance include relatives of other African-Americans who have died at the hands of police, Tamika Palmer, mother of Breonna Taylor, and Philonis Floyd, brother of George Floyd. Eulogy given by Reverend Al Sharpton, founder of the National Action Network. You can find the full video of the funeral at our website, cspan.org. Washington Today continues in a moment. Welcome back to Washington Today, which you can get as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app and wherever you get your podcasts. The U.S. House Judiciary Committee holding an organizational meeting today during which they adopt the committee rules that will be used for the next two years now that Republicans are in the majority. NBC News writes a routine House committee meeting erupted into a heated nearly hour-long debate Wednesday over the Pledge of Allegiance. Congressman Matt Gaetz, Republican from Florida, offered an amendment to require the pledge be said at the start of all committee hearings. Congressman David Cicilline, Democrat from Rhode Island, offering an amendment to that amendment to prohibit some people from leading that pledge. You know, Mr. Issa just made reference to how important it is for us to display our commitment to the Constitution and to commit to defend it aggressively. So I'd like to offer an amendment to the amendment, uh, adding in the second paragraph where the chair may designate an individual to lead the Pledge of Allegiance to add the following language. Provided, however, the pledge shall not be led by an individual who supported an insurrection against the government of the United States in any way. Because I think if we adopt this amendment, 
then we will be truthful in, in representing that stating this pledge is an affirmation of your defense of democracy and the Constitution. It's hard to take that claim seriously if, in fact, an individual who in any way supported an insurrection against the government of the United States is allowed to lead the pledge. So I would ask Mr. Gates to accept this friendly amendment, and I look forward to supporting it. Would the gentleman yield for I first a ask question? Mr. Gates if he'll support the amendment. To make sure that someone who led an insurrection against the United States doesn't make a mockery of the Pledge of Allegiance and stand before this committee with their hand over their heart claiming to support the Constitution. M Mr. Cicilline, I, 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 my concern would be if your definition of an insurrection is objecting to electors, then there would be many Democrats on the committee that wouldn't be eligible to lead the pledge since so many uh, That's objected. not my definition I mean, of an the, insurrection. the last Republican president I'll to get concede, sworn in absent I'll Democrat objectors me, was George Herbert Mr. Walker Bush. Claiming my time, Mr. Gates, I will allow the chairman to determine whether or not someone has participated in insurrection in the United States. I think this language is important. Would the gentleman further yield? I'm asking Mr. Gates, will you now accept the amendment? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that, that you may be disqualifying too many of your own members, Mr. Cicilline. I'm not concerned about that at all. Then agree to the amendment. Would, would let's, the, let's make this real. If you will the, want to give someone the right to stand before the House Judiciary Committee and lead the Pledge of Allegiance at a bare minimum, Let's guarantee that that person has not participated or supported or in any way helped an overthrow of the government of the United States. With the gentleman like yield. a simple proposition. Congressman David Cicilline, Democrat from Rhode Island. And you also heard Congressman Matt Gaetz, Republican from Florida. And trying to get them to yield was Congressman Daryl Issa, Republican from California. At today's Judiciary Committee organizational meeting, the committee went on to defeat Congressman Cicilline's amendment, 13 yes, 24 no, party line, Democrats yes and Republicans no. And then the underlying amendment from Congressman Gates to require the pledge be recited at the start of hearings, that passed by a vote of 39 to zero. The full House of Representatives today passing a bill to require hundreds of thousands of federal workers to return to their offices, ending the dramatic expansion of teleworking that was allowed during the COVID-19 pandemic. Fedweek.com reports that after returning to pre-pandemic levels, an agency could not increase telework again until the Office of Personnel Management certified that the agency had produced a plan meeting certain standards. Those will include that more off-site work would have a substantial positive impact on performance of the agency's mission, including customer service, would substantially lower the agency's cost for real estate and locality pay, and would not substantially increase costs for, for costs for secure network capacity, communications, tools, and equipment. Supporting the bill today, Congresswoman Virginia Fox, Republican from North Carolina. Mr. Speaker, let me state a simple fact that has evidently been forgotten in Washington. The federal workforce's primary imperative should always be to promptly serve the American people. Unfortunately, what the American people have experienced over the past two years is the exact opposite of what they deserve. Thanks to the federal government's pandemic-era telework policies, which were instituted by bureaucrats in Washington, delay and disarray might as well have become hallmarks of federal agencies and departments. According to a Federal Times report from October of last year, just one in three federal workers has returned to his or her office in a full-time capacity. It's abundantly clear that something must change, and House Republicans have the solution. 
Congresswoman Virginia Fox, Republican from North Carolina, on the House floor. More from the FedWeek article. Republicans also have raised the issue of teleworkers who are living outside higher-paying locality zones, receiving the salary rates paid in those zones because their official duty sites are within them, even though they only rarely work at those sites. Opposing the bill today, Congressman Gerald Connolly, Democrat from Virginia. We should be embracing the productivity and employee satisfaction gains realized through telework. I offered an amendment to this bill that would have done just that, but unfortunately, we're considering this bill under a closed rule. We should be using a measured approach to determine where hybrid or remote work might be, but might not be the best fit. I know I've done that in advocating for more in-person work at the IRS, processing paper tax returns, and at the State Department, responding to passport applications, and at the National Archives, fulfilling veterans' document requests, all of which require in-person functioning. And I've supported it, as have my colleagues. I've also offered a telework legislation bill, the Telework Metrics and Cost Savings Act, which would help agencies track telework goals, measure cost savings, and focus on using telework uh, effectively. But this bill is sort of a one-size-fits-all, come back to work no matter what. Congressman Gerald Connolly, Democrat from Virginia on the House floor. His district is in northern Virginia, close to Washington, D.C. A lot of federal employees live there. The House went on to pass this bill by a vote of 221 to 206, largely along party lines. Final bit from the Fed Week article on this bill. The Biden White House has not taken a position on the bill, although it has issued several sets of guidance calling on agencies to consider telework as a normal option for working arrangements rather than as an exception to them. CBS News reporting this morning more than 1,000 people have pleaded guilty or have been convicted on federal charges of defrauding the myriad COVID-19 relief programs that Congress established in the early days of the pandemic. And over 600 other people and entities face federal fraud charges. But that's just the start, according to investigators scheduled to testify Wednesday to a congressional committee as House Republicans mark the beginning of what they promise will be aggressive oversight of President Joe Biden's administration. That from CBS News. Today's hearing was the, the first of the new Congress for the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability. C-SPAN covered it. Here is the chair, James Comer, Republican from Kentucky, questioning Michael Horowitz, Justice Department Inspector General and chair of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, which was created by a COVID relief bill back in 2020. You mentioned the do not pay list. Can you briefly tell us what that is? So Treasury has set up a list of suspicious payees. It doesn't mean they're not eligible. It doesn't mean you can't, they can't get benefits. It means that they're on a list that requires secondary, at a minimum, secondary screening, Mm -hmm. secondary consideration and evaluation. Was this used by government agencies to prevent fraud? So this is a tool that I would assume would would have been eligible in their toolbox. Correct. Let's say the Small Business Administration or some agency that was uh, doling out a lot of money really quickly. Did, did they utilize the do not pay list? They did not. And the, the issue there is we've heard over and over again uh, at the time, well, we needed to get the money out right away. There was an emergency. No dispute about that. We needed to get the money out right away. There was an emergency. It gets <clears throat> back to what the Comptroller General said. You need to be ready for that. This list was sitting there. This was not anything that would have taken much time. There needs to be preparation. So, so let's, let, let me get this straight. The do not pay list, 
I would assume that would be people that owe back taxes, people that maybe owe child support. There are a variety of reasons. Convicted of fraud. They, indicative of potential fraud, indicative of individuals who are in arrears in other payments. You, you can get on the list for a variety of reasons. So how many people do we know received money from the federal government that were on the do not pay list? Um, I don't know across all programs. Um, wh what I do know is from the SBA's PPP program because um, 400, almost $400 billion went out in two weeks right. in that program. Of that amount, 57000 3.6 billion shouldn't have gone out right away. Not saying every one of those would have been denied, but at a minimum there should have been secondary screening. So what would be involved, what would this SBA had, had to have done if we could go back in time to ensure that people on the do not pay list were, were flagged at least for further review? Well, frankly, interacting with the Treasury Department in <clears throat> advance to make sure that that screening was occurring, that data matching was occurring. Yeah, unbelievable. Michael Horowitz, Justice Department Inspector General, Chair of the Pandemic Response Account Accountability Committee, testifying before the House Oversight and Accountability Committee. And questions from the chair, James Comer, Republican from Kentucky. The ranking Democrat on the House Committee is Jamie Raskin of Maryland. He asked Michael Horowitz about the history and the obstacles of tracking COVID relief aid, which totaled about four and a half trillion dollars over six bills since March 2020. When we passed the CARES Act in 2020 and we created the Pandemic uh, Response Accountability Committee, which um, you lead, um, the CARES Act included specific language directing the PRAC to create a user-friendly website right. to give the American people an overview of how pandemic relief funds were being spent, all the way down to the project community level. Um, but guidance released on April 10, 2020 uh, by President Trump made it nearly impossible to effectively track pandemic relief funding past the first distribution. Uh, and Mr. Chairman, I want to ask unanimous consent to insert the administration's April 10, 2020 guidance into the record. Without objection. So, Mr. Horowitz, how did this guidance affect the PRAC's ability to identify and prevent pandemic relief fraud? So, in the CARES Act, Congress said the, that the PRAC needed to launch a website within 30 days. We did. Go to pandemicoversight.gov. You can see how the money has been spent. You can get to your local zip code if you'd like. Um, we were challenged at the outset because OMB leadership decided to use what was already existing uh, reporting tools in usaspending.gov, which we did not believe was sufficient. GAO did not believe was sufficient, and SBA and others, uh, IGs, didn't believe was sufficient um, to meet the requirements of the CARES Act. The uh, memorandum that went out that you mentioned put that in place, um, and it limited our ability at the outset to get the data we needed. For folks who followed our website from 2020 forward, you will see gradual additions to the, to the website. In, indeed, we, SBA wouldn't give us the information, this is an SBA agency issue, until uh, September or October of 2020. We couldn't get much of any data from them because they were litigating FOIA lawsuits. Gotcha. So do you think that that guidance met the language and the spirit of the CARES Act requirements for tracking pandemic relief spending all the way to the ground. The public should know where money went. 
Congress needs to know where money went. You can't figure out whether a policy worked, whether it's been defrauded, who's accountable, if you don't know where the money went. Michael Horowitz, Justice Department Inspector General, questioned by Congressman Jamie Raskin, Democrat from Maryland, ranking member on the Oversight and Accountability Committee. More from the CBS News article, also testifying David Smith, an assistant director of the Office of Investigations at the U.S. Secret Service, who predicts that efforts to recover stolen assets and hold criminals accountable for pandemic fraud will continue for years to come. President Biden at the White House saying thank you to his outgoing chief of staff, Ron Klain, and welcoming his new chief of staff, Jeff Zients. Ron Klain first worked for Joe Biden from 1989 to 92 as chief counsel at the Senate Judiciary Committee, chaired by then-Senator Biden. Ron Klain also had positions in the Bill Clinton and Barack Obama White Houses. Here's part of his farewell. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Uh, I will will try to keep this brief, but I cannot promise there will not be some tears. This is the best job I've ever had. (laughs) And even though it's also the hardest job I've ever had, I I will miss this job, our work, this mission, and most of all, this team every single day. But I take solace in knowing that I am leaving you in the best of hands. Jeff Zients will be the first White House Chief of Staff ever to have led two policy shops and have been head of OMB before he took over as White House Chief of Staff. At the darkest time of the Biden 2020 campaign, Jeff stepped up to help. He also ran the transition and picked, frankly, many of you here in this room. (laughs) He ran the COVID response and led the team that has helped save hundreds of thousands of lives. Ron Klain, the only White House chief of staff that President Biden has had to date at the White House today, saying goodbye. And uh, taking over will be Jeff Zients, former counselor of the president, a White House COVID-19 response coordinator in the Biden administration. And in the Obama administration, he was OMB director and director of the National Economic Council. Here is President Biden talking about Jeff Zients. I've seen Jeff tackle some of the toughest issues in our government. When I was vice president, I first got to know him. We worked together and implement the Recovery Act of 2009. And later, he was director of the Office of Management and Budget. He later led the daunting, complicated task of fixing (laughs) healthcare.gov to get millions of Americans signed up for quality, affordable health care under the Affordable Care Act. And he led the National Economic Council. He shares my determination to build an economy that works for everyone, works from the bottom up and the middle out. And because when that happens, everybody does well. After the 2020 election, um, some of you know my one of my closest friends in the world, Ted Kaufman, who was my administrative assistant, then became, took my place in the Senate. Uh, he, he helped Ted uh, manage our transition in, in the office in incredibly trying circumstances. And he did the work. Thanks to Jeff, we had a historically diverse team from day one. And we're ready to get to work. And he led our COVID response, a massive logistical undertaking of historical proportions, and so much more. President Biden at the White House welcoming the new chief of staff, Jeff Seintz, and thanking the outgoing chief of staff, Ron Klain. We'll have the full event available at our video library at cspan.org.
And thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night.